Hey everyone, this is Stephen Blush, and welcome to the next episode of the Art of the Interview podcast series. Today is your time to get schooled, which is why we call this Rock History 101 from the vaults. This week's episode comes from a conversation I had with Lux Interior and Ivy Rorsash of The Cramps, who 26 years ago released their sixth studio album called Flame Job on the Medicine label in 1994. Lux and Ivy came over to my apartment and we discussed deep band history and punk rock history. It was a great time and they were a great interview. So without further ado, here are the cramps on Rock History 101, part of the Art of the Interview podcast series, powered by the Blush Media Network. Special thanks to Tony Mann for his magic touch in digitizing and editing this essential slice of rock culture. So let's listen on. No problem. So I like the new record a lot. Oh, good. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what do you... Um, now, this is the first record in how long now? Uh, Since uh, last one was in 91. Does this one uh, say something to you in particular? I mean, is there something particular that went on with this record that you're particularly proud of? or? It's different in, in a lot of respects from our other records, because now we have a multi-album deal, which mm-hmm. we've never had before, except one other time uh, with Enigma Records, and then they went out of business after our first album. So now we have a multi-album deal, and, and it, the president of the record company is uh, uh, Kevin Patrick, who is, used to come and see us at CBGB's in the 70s, so uh, it, it, it's, it's just really great. We're allowed to do whatever we want to do, whatever mm-hmm. weird thing pick up and, and uh, that's never happened before for us and also uh, as far as the recording of the record it's really uh, different because we didn't do it in a studio we did it at uh, this guy's house Earl Mankey he used to be the guitar player in Sparks oh, that really? group in sure, the 70s. Sure. he has a, 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 a real cool studio in his house mm-hmm. it's much different you know like, like uh, set, you set up the drums in the kitchen and stuff mm-hmm. like that and everything it wasn't a horrible studio feeling, you know, being in some studio. Uh, and he's a guitar player, so it was much more fun working with him mm-hmm. as opposed to engineers who aren't musicians who are right. trying to get a big drum sound and that's all they care about or know about. Mm-hmm. So, um, what is Flame Job? Well, Flame Job is, uh, you know, on top Flame Job. Right. And, um, the title came off a hot rod that we saw because we didn't have a weird turn to make up our mind about the album we were going to call Sex Fizz. And, um, and then we're driving home from the studio and this 44 came on the freeway. And Lux said, God, we'll do that plain job. And so we decided to call the album that. But there's other ways to take it, too. But when you see the front cover, well, it's a different sense. kind of plain job. <laughs> it's more like a a new kind of imaginary sex act or something. Mm-hmm. What is this? I mean, it's a cat nail clipper. It kind of sticks oh. her nails in the nice. uh-huh, Pretty interesting device. Yeah, Not a torture yeah. device. Yeah, that, I was thinking oh, it was something different. but <laughs> It's pretty good. Now, you guys originally came from Cleveland. Is that correct? Uh, Can you right on that? I grew up in Akron. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but I did. But I lived in Akron for mm-hmm. a year. Now, there was a lot happening at that time, too, right? That was kind of coming out, kind of... Uh, I think a lot of it probably happened later. 
after we left. Yeah. 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 I mean, all, all those Ohio bands happened after we were living in New York. Because mm-hmm. Nick came from the Electric Eels on the right? Yeah. Who were great, but although we never saw it. Ohio was weird at the time because there was no way of knowing, there was no like, scene of knowing who was doing other things. I think all these bands, you know, Devo, Electric Eels. Um, it was Rocket from the Tombs, which later became Peru, but they, they all seemed to be. Peruvian dead boys. Yeah. Right. And pagans, right? Yeah, yeah, pagans, pagans were great. Right, yeah. they were later. Yeah, it's Nick's cousins. Mm-hmm. We saw a rocket from the tombs when they were on a bill with television, and television, before they had records out, and they, they came from New York and went to play in, in, in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. The rocket from the tombs was amazing. That was an unbelievably fantastic show. Mm-hmm. It was in kind of a disco kind of place. So there's some people there were just there to see this, you know, to dance to records and other people knew what was coming. Mm-hmm. But uh, Steph Baders was the lead singer of uh, Rocket from the Tombs, and uh, then there were various members of the Dead Boys and people what later became Perubu and that band. But they were great because they had a big sheet that they were showing a movie on, mm-hmm. and he stuck a knife through it and cut down through the sheet and came jumping out of the, the sheet to start their show. Mm-hmm. And then television came out and played, and they opened with Psychotic Reaction. It was an amazing show. Mm-hmm. Now the music scene of, that was really radical. I think a lot of people today kind of forget that how radical it was to be doing music like that back then. It, it was completely radical. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it was just like when most bands were just top forty. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there wasn't any such thing as everybody. It was just horrible rock music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, any kind of club was top forty, and then there were big concerts. So that was the two things. So what was it that brought you to New York? Was it just the obvious things? Or just well, band going or was it in particular? Um, to start a band, I think literally we saw it because we saw pictures from the GBs and rock scene and showed the New York Dolls standing in front of it. And, wow, let's go there. And we went and we saw the Ramones of CBGBs. And, uh, and uh, that was, there was no turning back. Mm-hmm. We were seeing pictures of television and stuff like that. In the magazines and stuff. Said, well, if we want to, we want to play anything new. We've got to go there to do it. Which is, there wasn't really any place, even in Ohio. There were all these bands that existed there, but they really couldn't find any place to play. Mm-hmm. How did New York initially treat you when you first started? When you started your first gigs? Did it take a while to kind of get accepted, or was it? No. It was pretty. We were pretty fortunate because we um, we auditioned at CBGBs and basically stuck. <laughs> And but Peter Crowley from Axis saw us, so he immediately gave us Saturday nights opening for Suicide. Mm-hmm. And then somewhere along the line, the Ramones saw us and had us opening for them, which is a huge break. So stuff happened pretty quick. We're pretty fortunate live for live audience. Critically, like press-wise, we were just just scorned, mm-hmm. you know, because I, I think we just didn't get it. Yeah. I, remember, I don't know. But what the press like back then? Like like. Uh Blue Oyster Cult or something? Was no, no, they liked all the newer like bands, Ramones and um, Richard Hill and television, mm-hmm. but and I think we just seemed like something separate from that. Mm-hmm. Was that a conscious thing? I mean, were you like... No, uh, we, we, we were just stepping in. We weren't trying to be something one or the other. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, there was definitely a gap between the press and the live shows. Because mm-hmm. we're packing the house, but... Right. <laughs> then there were, I guess there were two singles? Two seven inches around that Yeah, Vengeance singles. Right. And what was, um, now did those seven inches end up on the Alex Chilton EP? Is that how that worked? Or did you um, record that for that? Well, we re- recorded those with Alex mm-hmm. uh, uh, and that put 
put out the singles, and then later on uh, we did a deal with IRS Records and put them out as a as an EP with yeah. some of the other things we had recorded at the same time. Yeah. And the back cover, if I'm not mistaken, was the picture from that Palladium show, right? No, no, no it was um, show? it was called CBGB's Second Avenue Theater. It was oh, right, right. Or something. Yeah. So I think it was with Patty Smith there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And Generation X or something like that. Uh huh. Yeah, I remember that place. So, um, a lot of bands played there. It wasn't open very long. Right. It was like 2nd Avenue and 3rd Street. Uh-huh. 5th Street, something like that. Yeah. Um, so what was... It's um, where the Yardbirds did that Yardbirds live album. Oh, really? So what was um, what was Alex's state of mind back at that point? Where was he at at that point? Uh, that was like a weird period. That's around that period when he was doing that Bangkok single. Um, yeah. Yeah, because right after, he, he ended up staying in Memphis when he went there with us, because he'd been living in New York, I think, things were going his way. He just stayed behind, stayed in Memphis. Mm-hmm. Um, stay of mind. Mm-hmm. It's hard telling. <laughs> he yeah, was I mean, he, uh, drunk, falling asleep on the console most of the time we were recording. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that certainly added to the flavor, I'm sure. Yeah, he was, he was trying to get a... a, a Trying to sell his new album at the time, and, and uh, his manager sold it for five thousand dollars or something like that. So he was feeling he was feeling bad at the time, actually, as I recall. So I stayed in and Because that was before he really had his resurgence in terms of yeah, you know, yeah. acceptance yeah. Yeah. of what he had accomplished. Yeah. yeah. Um, what was your guys' relationship to rockabilly? Because I mean, you had nothing to do with the rockabilly scene that later came after that, but. But you no, there's but always that part in your music. See, I question whether that rockabilly scene was really rockabilly. Mm-hmm. I think that the, the rockabilly bands that come out now are in the true spirit of rockabilly. You've got Gordon Keith, a lot of those bands. But uh, I like those bands like the early 80s, but that's not what true rockabilly gave people the wrong idea of what rockabilly is. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a cute version of it. Yeah, if you listen to stu- any of the stuff that came out of Starday Studios or Sun Records or anything, it's it's really, you know, nasty, real uh, gutty uh, R&B-based rock and roll, dirty, bluesy stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of rockabilly is that bopping at the soda shop kind of, the, the, the bands from the 70s and 80s were kind of doing that kind of cutie pie thing. Right. And, it, it, and it was never that way. It was real sex music. You know? mm-hmm. uh, Guys, southern hillbillies were like real kind of nasty people, actually. Yeah, what were some of the bands who that you were covering? I guess Human Fly was a cover, right? No, no that was not a cover. But there were yeah, a few. But Domino, the flip of Domino was uh, done by Roy Ordison on mm-hmm. Sun. It says it's written by Sam Phillips. It may have been or might be, you know, because he owned it. He bought it, yeah. You know, that's the way right. business worked back then. Mm-hmm. Um, the next record, The Way I Walk, was Jack Scott's song. Right. Charlie Feathers, I can't hardly stand it. Now those were all kind of nasty fucks, all those, all those artists. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Charlie Feathers is great. He's he's still playing around today. Mm-hmm. He, he's the guy that was his claim to fame is that he invented the rockabilly hiccup, that hiccupy mm-hmm. thing. Right. He I really. Huh? I don't know if Roy Orbison was a nasty fuck. Yeah. Well. She was a good singer. Mm-hmm. He rocked. Mm-hmm. Might have been at those times. I don't know. But most people covered up. Mm-hmm. This new album is uh, How Can You Do Miss Junior Thompson. I mean, that original is great of that. Mm-hmm. Pretty sawed off guy. Mm-hmm. 
Now, were these like hard things to find when you were growing up? Because there was really no precedent kind of for that, right? Well, growing up, like, yeah, like growing up, but collecting records for us was easy at first, especially when I moved to Ohio. We met Sacramento, but Ohio was just the best place to collect rock bill in the world. Um, it's very industrial, you know, steel and rubber company, so a lot of people from the South came up there to work and uh, dumped their records, so these junksters were loaded. And there weren't record collectors at the time. Yeah, right. So, I mean, it was hard. You had to find the originals to hear the music. There weren't, and that was great reissues, um, well, which is great, too. But well, record collectors there were were collecting Beatles and stuff right, like right. that. Nobody, so nobody, nobody else wanted to work for it. Yeah, didn't really have any respect for We loved it. We were loving it. We went down to Sun Records Warehouse in Memphis when we first moved back here. And at that time, you could go buy old Sun Records. But we bought like, I don't know, between 150 and 200 of them for like 20 cents a piece. They were a quarter a piece or five for a dollar. Like that. Unbelievable, you know, what you could buy. Now you could pay $50 a piece for them or something if you want, you know, something like that. But, uh, yeah, there, there were some real good record dealers in Akron, too, and uh, we got stuff from But it was still, record collecting, I think, at that time, was still pretty small potatoes kind of stuff compared to today. You guys were also, like, the first to bring that kind of, uh, that trash culture thing to, to rock. Um, a, um, kind of, tell about where a lot of this stuff came from, and also, B, what do you kind of think now that that's become the mainstream, to well, we never thought of it as trash culture. It gets called that and everything like that. But we kind of thought of it as like folk art or something because it's it's actually made, you know, like those movies uh, were made very cheaply, but they usually don't have actors. They don't have real people in it. They're usually made by a director who was one guy, you know, his crazy vision, you know, he would go out and do this thing. Found a find a bunch of leftover film that he could get for nothing from somebody that made a real movie and make these movies. Uh, and so as a result, what you have is movies that really show what, what life was like back then, you know, as, as opposed to Hollywood movies. Mm-hmm. Um, what other kinds of trash culture are we responsible for? Well, I just think like we're, to think, but the movies kind of stuff is the stuff that pops in the Yeah, first. yeah. But also, you know, just the general embracing of that was kind of unheard of before you had done that. But yeah, well, I think, um, yeah, I'm glad it's more appreciated today because it, it was also kind of hard to find that stuff at one time, and, and, and it's it's getting more easy to find it now. And, and as people see it, they realize this is just like an overlooked. There's just a lot of classic films. That's what they are. They're just amazing films that are really good. And uh, uh, that's uh, that's something that people should see. You know, I mean, even when they first came out, they were they only played at drive-ins in the South, or they played at art houses, someplace where you know drunks were sleeping off or something. You know, but. Uh, there were a lot of real great directors. Herschel Gordon Lewis was an incredible director. Made 35 movies or something. Uh, Doris Wishman made a lot of amazing movies. Yeah, and, uh, uh, Roberta Findlay here in New York City made a lot of amazing movies. Some really sick movies. That are, uh, I mean, I call them sick, but they're just really great movies. You know, uh, 
Richard and Ron Orman made a lot of really great movies. Uh, uh, there was one called The Bizarre Ones, or The Monster and the Stripper, which actually started the monster in it was Sleepy LaVie, a rockabilly really? star, mm -hmm. strangely enough, who we played with at Max's Kansas City really? when it, back in those days. Um, and they, they also made uh, uh, Please Don't Touch Me, another of my favorite movies. Uh, I don't know. These are just amazing movies, and, and it's really uh, great to see it and them become popular. But also, I, I think uh, we had a, a, a hand in making people aware of the fact that old, just old records, just old punk rock records from the '60s and uh, old rock Bay records, were something to go after look look for. And, and a lot of these are getting released on compilations now, and that's great because people because those would have never gotten heard. You know, if they if, if people didn't go out and collect those and put them out and make it easy for people to get them nowadays. Yeah, they're even coming out as CDs nowadays. So, so that's good because all that stuff is really good. You know, it was somebody's dream at one time. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and somebody's uh, uh, somebody's great art. Mm -hmm. So it's good that uh, it's there available today. Mm -hmm. Well, there's that big movie coming out about. Um, Edward Jr. too. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. Be interesting to see what that does to the whole genre too. Yeah, because I get that booked on at night based on Nightmare and Ecstasy. Mm -hmm. I think that book is nice. Mm -hmm. Especially good movie too. Turn this out really nice. Um, how about psychedelia? Was there? I mean, because I, I I don't really see it in your. I was going to say, is there? Was there kind of a, a psychedelic side to the crabs? I don't know if that's. Oh really yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And that's more just directly influenced mm -hmm. because that's what we did a lot of, and that fact what we met. Yeah, we've, we've done a lot yeah. of psychedelics. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I think when we first, the idea for this band came about in Ohio, we were taking diet pills and going to see all the rock and roll shows and everything like that. And they, mm -hmm. they were great. There's a place where we went a lot in Akron called, uh, uh, now it's called Civic Theater. But it used to be called Lowe's Theater, but it's this unbelievably beautiful palace. Uh, uh, it looks like a courtyard of a Moorish temple, and, and, and the, the ceiling in the place is it, it, it's all blue and it has little holes in it with lights like stars. And it has a cloud machine that makes clouds move back from the front of the theater to, to back as you're sitting under it. Look at it. it really looks like you're outdoors in this place. Incredible, but they had just amazing rock and roll shows, and we go see all the time. And uh, local bands and, and big bands, you know, like uh, Roxy Music would play there. You know, all, all the bands of the mid 70s and stuff would play there. And we'd go there, and everybody get dressed up, and it'd be real wild shows. But we'd take drugs and go to that. Met all the crazy people who later became these bands. Mm -hmm. So that was really fun. But uh, I forgot what the question was here. Psychedelics. Psychedelics. Oh, psychedelics, yeah. <laughs> I talk about psychedelics, I forgot what I was talking about. We, it's always been a little disguised in our music, I think, like our, our latest album, like Route 66, we consider that kind of a psychedelic song. Mm -hmm. We changed a few of the words in it, so it's has references to that. Our first song, Surf and Bird, we covered that by the Trashman, and it, it goes on for like six minutes of what I consider to be psychedelic music, you know. Sometimes people consider psychedelic music to be kind of soft, and, and there's that kind, but there's also the crazed stuff like the 13th floor elevators did and stuff. Mm -hmm. and that's more like the kind of stuff we do. But, I don't know, all of our albums have a little bit, little psychedelic tinges to them, mm -hmm. I think. 
Um, I think the drug culture probably had a lot to do with the formation of the a lot of this early punk scene too. What, what, oh yeah. What were the uh, what were the what were people basically doing back then? What were the drugs of choice back then? Which, Everything. Which then? You mean? Um, like uh, kind of like when the punk thing started breaking either in Cleveland or New York. And stuff like that. Oh, I, I think, think they were shooting just, peanut butter. You know anything? Well, it's like a lot. It seemed to me like it was just speed quaaludes and booze. Quaaludes were mm-hmm. popular. Because it was yeah, not a psychedelic. It wasn't, wasn't a lot of acid at that yeah. time, I don't think. Mm-hmm. And I know in England, that was like what we said, horrible crystals that sulfites, sulfates to the sniff that like burns your whole brain. But that's what, it, you know, did kind of fuel that way. Absolutely. Yeah, Jane County was saying how speed was so important to the British punk It was, yeah. It's, it's, now, when did um, what led you to leave New York, and what was going on at that time? Did you go to Paris at that point? No. Yeah. Just uh, moved to LA. Oh, okay. Been in LA ever since. But, um, so what made you leave New York? It's. I think the scene here had stagnated. We were attracted to it, and it makes sense to be here. It was just fizzling out the club and. Most of the friends we had had moved away already. Um, at the same time, we were starting to tour instead of just playing locally. So when you get to that, then a band's income is fixed, really. You, you make the same no matter what, and it was cheaper to live in L.A. Um, the record company, IRS Records, was based out in L.A. We had some... We had some kooky notion that being out there would help it run smooth, you know, but that kind of didn't happen. It didn't but, work. But anyway, it was okay. We had friends in LA, and it was just easier to live there. I think that was the main reason for me, was to try and whip that record company into line. But, it didn't work. But, but it was just, uh, you know, scenes come and go, and it was just, at that time, New York got really boring. All the, bands, all the bands that were playing, Talking Head, Blondie, Ramones, Television, all, all of them, you know, and it grew up and had records out and were off touring like that. So it wasn't all, all the bands that we started out with playing there weren't, weren't really playing anymore. And uh, I don't know, it just seemed like something to do at that time. What's your, your guys' relationship to the music biz? Because you guys have a pretty interesting history, and I think it's kind of saved you in a lot of ways by not being really kind of in that loop, so to speak, yeah. but I'm sure there's problems with that as well. So. I don't know if the problem, I think the benefits outweigh the problems. Yeah, I could think if we had more business savvy that maybe we would have avoided some of the situations, but maybe the opposite would have occurred, you know, too, and uh, yeah, we, we have a poor sense of time, you know, we kind of live outside of time, I think. And We've seen a lot of bands that were, were real cool when they started out, kind of turned to shit, just hanging around with music industry all the time. And uh, we, we've had opportunities to, to do deals with record companies where the first thing they said to us is, you know, you, we've got to change your sound into a more palatable thing for all of that and everything. We, we could never deal with that for two seconds. So yeah, about how to market it's probably why we're still around. Pigeon always always fit in. I, we can't get into thinking about that. We don't want to know about it. Mm-hmm. This question probably relates to that, but what do you think the key to your survival is? Maybe that. But That's a large point role. part of it. We love because... Uh, we didn't pick the music, the music picked us, you know, and, and um, we were just so fanatically uh, the music that inspires us. 
seems very natural and it continues to be natural. It's easy to be inspired. It's just um, continually blows my mind when I play records. And it hasn't, you know, I think we haven't fallen into some of the routines that maybe even, maybe eventually break up bands that they feel like they have to tour maybe when they don't feel like it. They just think they have to. Um, I think me and Lux being together helps because I think we protect each other and um, so support each other. Where uh, you know, that's because I want to, you know, most people are in bands and they're just a bunch of individuals who are who maybe start getting all different notions. Maybe they maybe they started their band for the wrong reasons, thinking it was a career, or maybe at least that happened too quick for them, and they started thinking that kind of business way about it. And um, you know, I wouldn't mind if we sold more records, but on the other hand, I think it's an incredible scam that, that we can do this at all. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's cool. also for a couple to stay along together this long and yeah. still be able to work together. Is, is yeah, but see, it's also intertwined. Yeah, you know, with being a cramps. If, if we were just people, if we were just nearly two people. Mm -hmm. and, I don't know. It's just it's, we must have had too many lives together in the past or something. Kind of wonder what we did. Yeah, how does that work in terms of you know you being so close and also working together? Is that that must get pretty twisted sometime on a on a work level, right? And that's it's probably very twisted. Yeah, but uh, yeah, the word's good because I think we're just on certain frequency that's almost nonverbal sometimes that we just kind of cuts through a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this we figured this is a product of our love or something. You know, that's the thing. and uh, we we love it for that reason. I don't know. It's all seemed really natural to us. Everything we've done. You know, I mean, I don't think we could do it any other way than what we did. People are always saying, oh boy, it's too bad you made that mistake, and it's too bad you did this, too bad. But it seemed like there was only one decision at any time in our career, you know, yeah. one thing we could do. I think we, by not having much business sense, I think it's protected us. Because I, mean, I know that some bands, that maybe their management or people around them say, you have to keep touring, you must because of this and because of that. And maybe they really are just too tired and think, therefore, they should just quit and not be in a band. Maybe they didn't really need to quit. Maybe they just needed to take a break, you know. Mm -hmm. But Dermot said you can't do that, right. you know. And they were because they have all their all was, their entourage sure. of outsiders telling them that, what they had to do. Because right. they're so quote unquote focused. You yeah, get that kind of I think it just kind of gobbles up some bands. Mm -hmm. Some bands just uh, been the number of bands we've known that just had to break up because they they, they get together, they spend tons of money and go in debt. Putting everything into it to try to have a hit record, their first album isn't a hit, and then they have to break up. Mm -hmm. They're forced to. You know. mm -hmm. it's, it's, you know, that's that's kind of a, a trap that's always been around in the music business. You know. but that's one thing good about about the punk rock coming out of that scene of punk rock. That was a real education. A, a lot of those bands, I think, knew that back then and avoided that that thing. You know that. Uh, that uh, happened to uh, a lot of bands a few years before that. What do you see as some of the biggest public misconceptions about the early days of like punk rock scene? Because I'm sure you, sure you see a lot of them, just from a public persona, from a public perspective. I don't. I don't know the mis. I mean, how other people. Well, you know, people will probably say to you like, "Wow, back in those days, they did this," or they, um, or like, the bands were somehow 
I don't know. I, I just see, it just seems to me that like like anything in history, there, there becomes a rewriting of it somewhere along the way. I was wondering if there's anything. Well, it, it's funny. I, I I don't know what people know about that whole scene that happens. We have our ideas about it because we were down there at CBGB's watching bands or playing or something all the time, and we we kind of have it was kind of a life that we had and knew all those people and it was really fun. And, and now when people talk about punk rock, which we were calling ourselves punk rockers down there and when that was going on and we all had this idea that's what it was, but it, every band was totally different. Mm -hmm. was, some bands were pop bands, some bands were this or that, or you know, some bands like the Velvet Underground, some bands like you know, some really pop thing or something. But uh, uh, now the idea of punk rock, when people hear that, I don't know, to me even, I think of punk rock now, I think of it as a real hardcore skinheads, you know, some kind of music that sounds like, and, and it was just, uh, you know, it was just young kids making music they wanted to make at that time, and it was very, all, all every one band to the next, very different kind of stuff, you know, real very, there wasn't any kind of, it wasn't any kind of a particular music. I don't know. I don't know what people are referring to when they say. And even now, when somebody comes up and says, "Oh, you know, that's like that's a punk rock group," I don't know exactly what that means. Mm -hmm. um, is the Cramps sex music? Yeah, I think that's the main ingredient. Mm -hmm. I think rockabilly was that. I think rock and roll. That's that's what rock and roll is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. I mean, that term is a term that comes from the blues that means in, you know sexual intercourse. That's mm -hmm. what it what it means. And that's what we always took. Any, any deviation from that is, is, to the degree you deviate from that, is the, the degree you are missing the point. How about like, um, is it drug music? Is it like a... Uh, well, I think sex, drugs and sex, mm -hmm. all that stuff, it's pleasure, it's that, it's that principle, it's all that, it's, it's that. It's altered state music, and I think it can alter your state without drugs. Mm -hmm. Not drugs, it's quite interesting to listen to. But uh, I, you know, I think it can get you high. Mm -hmm. um, now, a lot of, there's been quite a few people who come out of your band, too, right? There's been, um, well, Kid Congo Powers, right? Yeah. And he's done uh, Gun, Gun Club in the Caves. Um, what, what was, uh, when did he leave? I don't know when he left. That was um, 83. Mm -hmm. And what was, the, what was his leaving about? He, um, he had too. a great personal style and it, and it worked good in those bands. I mean, he was in the gun club before our band, too. He right. had a beautiful style, but the uh, the open tuning that he depended on and whatever, and um, small female required some guitar over bedding and something had to happen, I thought. Mm -hmm. So, just so I needed someone who was more you know, the rock and music that we listen to. I think this guy, I really like his personal style. I think it's just a good match. We're still real good friends with the kid. Mm -hmm. See him out there fairly often. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he has a new band. Mm -hmm. And then, what happened to Brian Gregory? I remember he went out and did that band The Veil or something? Uh, no, Beast. Beast. Right. And then that was the last musical adventure of his. What happened to him? Um, he lived in Florida. And then he lives, uh, I think he lives in Dallas now. He's not involved with music. We yeah. saw him a few years ago. I don't know what he's doing. He just lives in the South. Mm -hmm. And how about, um, it was Nick Knox, too, right? Uh huh. 
Nick's just, I think he just kind of got tired of it. It's really hard being in the cramps because you have to go everywhere in the world you know, to play, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and uh, uh, he just got interested in other kind of sports and stuff like that. Yeah. But, I mean, he was with us for 13 years, so by saying mm-hmm. burned out, he's still pretty good endurance. Yeah. Am I missing any characters, major players besides that? Also probably more interesting. Those are the ones that were around longer, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what 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 are you guys proudest of in terms of uh, what you've accomplished? I mean, what, what would what would you like to point to in terms of? Uh, well, our records, I think. You know, I, mean, I, I like the fact that we we've, we've made. To me, it's really great that 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 we've been able to make records and then the record company print presses up a whole mess of them and they go all over the world. So we've made a little piece of plastic all over the world, mm-hmm. and uh, that makes me feel good. That, you know, I know in New Zealand or probably Russia, somebody's got a cramps record somewhere. That's that's kind and of and learning how to feeling. produce them. That's been just a learning process. And it's, I like this album because I we just listen. I think we we can hear better than we used to as far as the records we loved to figure out why is it we love that record? What is it about it? How could we? get those elements in our records and, you know, the whole technological aspect involved with the music. I mean, the music is magic, but it has to, mm-hmm. you have to marry it with technology in order to create a record of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm amazed that we can do that. But, you know, after it happens, it just seems that it's really hard to do, but there it is. I think it's hard making, making good records these days with today's technology, it's harder than it was to make records in the 60s or 50s, which, because they all had all tube equipment and stuff, it was easy to make good records. Well, they were in a sound. They they would have a sound in a good studio. You would just walk in there, whatever the band was, gets to walk in the studio and the engineer would have their sound. And it was just, wasn't multi-track recording and stuff like it is today, it was the band played. Sure. That's kind of how this album was done. Every, Every track on it, we just played as a band. All kinds of mistakes happen that way and cool things happen between people playing that, that way. It do, don't happen when you lay down track after track and overdubs and all that kind of junk. I don't know if, I mean, as far as proud, I mean, that's for me as far as making a record, but I, I don't even feel like it's less enough to feel even proud about it. Sometimes it just seems like it's coming from somebody else or somewhere else. Writing songs, I just because he feels so, we don't almost feel like it's not us. Mm-hmm. It just feels uh, like it's something bigger mm-hmm. coming through us. So it's not just just us. It's more than that. Absolutely. Yeah. We have a good friend over there, I think. Oh, she's a sweet She's a good interview tool, too. Yeah. Every other last season. Yeah. Yeah, I can't say good for that. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, do you guys smoke marijuana? I don't anymore. Not too much. Mind if we do? Oh, no, no. But you won't get me talking anymore. Okay. (laughs) That would be the end of the talk. I never know what protocol we have. You can have it and all that kind of stuff. No. Personal things. I can't do it. I I have to snooze. I can only listen to music or sleep. In those days, we always be out buying. That's all. That's the drugs we could afford here was loose joints out on the street. Loose joint, man. Say what's left in my memory. That was bad for memory. It certainly doesn't help. Yeah. Maybe um, that's fine. Maybe I made you remember. What was? Because I remember that. Yeah, loose joints on the street. That's like a long gone era too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can't really do that. You can't do that anymore, yeah. really. 
bad pickle bag on the street and stuff as people get to. I remember standing outside when Star Wars opened up. The first day that Star Wars opened up, we didn't even know what it was. I didn't, but but we were in that neighborhood on 86th Street and uh, at the theater that opened up here, and we were standing outside of it saying, you know, what is this movie? Look at this line. It's two blocks long. And the guy opened the door and, and says, okay. And he turned around like that, and he turned around, and we just walked in because the line was two blocks long. He said, this must be some kind of big deal. So we walked in and... Uh, in front of this whole line there, which was really great, and, and, and got our tickets, and, and so we were like the 15th in line or something to get in there, and we're standing there, and these these guys are standing there uh, smoking this really intense smelling stuff, and, and uh, we said, hey, you want to sell one of those? And, and, and they said, yeah, but this is really good stuff. This this is five bucks a joint or something. And we went, oh, man, you know, yeah, I know, it's really good. You know, I, I can imagine, okay. But we said, okay, we, this is great. We got in here. We're going to see something really intense because everybody's saying, oh, I can't wait to see it. And uh, so we got this joint and smoked it, and it was like some kind of, I don't know what it was, a sense of me or something, but we'd never had anything. Yeah, probably. Yeah, it could have been angel dust. I don't know, but like we were in outer cigarettes. And so we sit down to watch. We sit down and, and we smoke this stuff, and we're sitting there, and Star Wars comes on with it. That was really bizarre. He dusted for Star Wars. That's pretty good. <laughs> Um, do you guys see your influence in, in today's music? I mean, because I kind of see it in a lot of places. I think about. I don't now, but I did, for years I didn't really say somebody's influence wise. I couldn't hear, but now I do. Um, you got to look at a band like uh, I don't know, like White Zombie, for instance. Uh-huh. I see them. I see. Well, them. I've read in interviews where they said they were influenced by us. Yeah, so that's great. Bass player. Said so she got the idea of playing from the C and she said that guitar player. Mm-hmm. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm r- real glad, you know, yeah. we've made anybody feel like they could have a band because uh, I, th- I think when we went down to CBGBs and saw the Ramones standing on that stage that was about as big as that corner right there, the original stage at CBGBs, we saw them. We said, yes, we, we can do this. Mm-hmm. We can look at them. Right. That was effective what we ended up being. I mean, I know we don't sound like the Ramones, but I think whatever we would have done would have sounded different if we hadn't seen the Ramones mm-hmm. somehow. They just looked incredibly famous, right? Right. Yeah, it's like an atom bomb. Right. Johnny would walk into the place with his guitar, carrying his guitar in a plastic bag, you know, with a handle on it and stuff like that. But they just looked incredibly famous the first time we saw them. Mm-hmm. Well, you guys as well, similar to them, kind of opened the doors for people to say, like, okay, I don't have to be a virtuoso to, yeah. to begin playing this band. Yeah. And I think that, that if there was any purpose, duty served. Then that, yeah. There was a whole that whole. Mm-hmm. punk rock scene of them was the end of an ego-driven band. So, you know, right. like progressive rock, rock music was so, like, ego-oriented. And I think that was what kind of defined her, this lack of ego and, that, and acknowledging that it was something coming through you and just letting it fly, you know, instead of putting them in big yeah, you'd go to the music stores over there, and I forget even where they they are now, but you'd go over to the music stores, and there'd be all these Led Zeppelin wannabes hanging out there and stuff like that. And they'd always be telling you stuff like, well, oh, you you guys, you know, one of the punk things, right? You know, you guys, you guys ought to be ashamed of yourself. You've got to play guitar for 10 years before you ever deserve to be on stage. You've got to get good, or you don't deserve being up there. There's so many good guitars and all that stuff. Like, like, it, it, like, it's, like it's, you know, sports or something like it's... Uh, it's like at, at rock and roll. That's really a weird 
a weird offshoot it took there, like in the seventies, like how good you were as a musician. That's what made good rock and roll. Yeah. How fast you could play, or how many notes within one minute, or something. Like that. that was what made you a musician. What was the stuff that initially killed music in the seventies? Was it stuff like fusion? Was it stuff you know the guys who kind of played in a rock vernacular, like the guys who kind of used rock, like they played rock but they didn't really respect it, kind of. You know what I'm saying? Like that was too simple, but we'll. Yeah, you know, there's like that whole vibe that was going on. It's a progressive. It's also like a lot of the bands that start out cool in the '60s, like the British bands that were playing R&B and they were playing electrified blues. So it started out just a reverence for blues. They mm -hmm. were taking muddy waters and howling with electrifying and making exciting music. Somehow that evolved into this ego thing. Well, you said it's just that term, progressive. Yeah, it progressed because it was a lot of the same players that were great in '60s became progressive. Thing. You know, first it was called rock and roll, and then all of a sudden it was started. People started to call it rock music. You know, like it became respectable. And then it was. It became intellectual. It became subject to critique, whereas rock and roll used to kind of exist outside of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the things that they had critics. But rock and roll was just rock and roll. That kind of elevated it to a legitimate level where it shouldn't be. Right. Was there any band in particular that that kind of turned you away from all that? I mean, was it like your you said progressive? Was it like your ever so like impoverished? Mean, well, that's that's, that's a perfect that's example. Like that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of that going on. And all the all that kind of like uh, all that kind of like country rock kind of stuff that was happening in, in the early seventies. All, all that kind of thing. That was just totally getting away from exciting music. You know. Nobody was ever dancing. Everything was like in your head, or they, like a cerebral thing. A really song we did that we don't even do anymore, Zombie Dance. A lot of people say our songs about horror. And when they're not, Zombie Dance was about a specific thing that's not even relevant today. And that was, you know, we had the lyric, uh, wiggle your ears to get in the groove. You know, you know, here's Bill and Betty, the done dead already. You know, it's, which thing about audiences at the time, I mean, now people do dance for rock and roll, but you know, like when we first started playing, most people just stood at shows, and that's punk rock kind of finally put an end to that. We play gigs in like college colleges and stuff in like Providence, Rhode Island, stuff like that. And there'd be all these people standing there with notepads or something, looking at us. You know, like you know, oh yes, this is punk rock. Oh, okay. Or you know, like it was, it was really weird. After playing a few of those, we wrote that song. What were some of the most memorable reactions from from those kind of stuffy crowds? And that was that. Critics or oh. Well, there was a guy we were opening the Ramones in Long Island. There was a guy at the typewriter's table. It was like writing a newspaper. <laughs> we did a show in Washington D.C. That my most memorable early show was um, one of the first shows outside of New York. We play Washington D.C. and the guy um, somehow they've been a goof up in the booking and they had us booked for uh, two nights. I say Thursday, and Friday, but they only announced the Friday. So no one came the first night, but we were playing anyway. And the only audience was like these two drunken sailors who were just losing their minds and dancing really nutty on They're the floor. They're doing cartwheels. And in we front just of did the set. We had nothing else to do, and you go there. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we'll play anyway as well. You know, mm -hmm. and just, that was a weird audience. Because there were times when we played for really small audiences. Mm -hmm. Really small. Uh, how would you guys like to be remembered? Let's say there's like a a musical encyclopedia or an epitaph or something like that. What would you like to say to you guys? 
the band that became as big as the Beatles late in their career. Um, how would we like to be remembered? But there's like one thing you want people to come away from the experience. Yeah. I just think I like Rock and Bones. Uh, this is the running gears. This very this is bloody gears. But actually, the original says this is the running gears of a bopping machine. So, you know, he says, "Hang my bones on the wall." I, I love that. You know, it's like a monument. Just hang the bones on the wall and say, "This is the running gears of a bopping machine." That's good. I like that.